0: The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Metis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. We're so excited to announce the What Are We Doing's first podcast sponsor, Go Power. GoPower is a trusted, recognized leader in mobile power technology and recently celebrated their 25th birthday by shipping their millionth solar panel. Since 1996, they have offered everything you need to go off-grid, pairing quality products with unparalleled customer support. Use GoPower wherever your adventures take you. We're so lucky to have GoPower as a sponsor with the Aquatic Biosphere Project and the What Are We Doing podcast. They've actually donated a portable solar setup for our travel trailer where we will be bringing conservation education all across the province of Alberta soon. It's called The Minnow. Check it out on our website. It is very, very cool. GoPower takes the opportunity to inspire and educate their audience on the endless benefits that portable solar can provide. They offer educational videos, inspirational van, Airstream, RV, lifer experiences, and share their philanthropic initiatives. You can check them out on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Check them out at gpelectric.com. Welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. Today, we're going to learn all about coal in Alberta, and what might be the implications to our freshwater systems here in the province. What environmental implications there might be, human health implications, and just water availability. Is this going to use up all of our water? Today, we're talking to Colton Vesey from the University of Alberta. He's a PhD student there, and he knows his stuff when it comes to mining and water quality implications. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn a little thing or two about the coal policy in Alberta and what potential coal might mean for our water systems.
1: Air. Foster. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Lo. In water.
0: water we doing and how can we do better your one-stop shop for everything water related from discussing water its use and the organisms that depend on it all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Hi, and welcome to another Deep Dive episode Today, we're going to be talking about the implications to water from potential mining activities and kind of taking a, a, a focused look at, at what's happening in Alberta at this current moment and, and potential implications to water right here in the province of Alberta in relation to mining exploration throughout the, the Foothills region. So I'm so excited to uh, invite Colton onto the show. So Colton, do you mind just introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background about what you study and, uh, and yourself? Sure.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, David. So I'm uh, currently a PhD student at the University of Alberta in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. Uh, I study uh, a field called environmental geochemistry, uh, and I'm also a registered geoscientist in training with the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Saskatchewan. So the field that I study in, um, like broadly biogeochemistry uh, and more specific for what I do called environmental geochemistry, it's really the study of integrating uh, biological, chemical, physical and geological processes uh, and trying to understand uh, different different environmental and mining systems as a whole. Uh, and I, I specifically study and focus on uh, trace contaminants and their uh, mobility in different environments. Uh, so contaminants like arsenic or selenium and, and vanadium. Uh, and typically that's associated with mining environments, but we also do study natural analogs as well quite a bit.
0: Nice, nice, and I'm, we're going to jump right into that, I'm sure, and uh, kind of explaining a bit about what what those terms are, like mobility and things like that, uh, as they apply to kind of what's going on at this current moment. But thanks so much for being part of the show today. So for those who are listening to this podcast who aren't in Alberta, or even for that matter, who are in Alberta but haven't heard about what's currently happening in the Eastern Slopes region, could you just start off by explaining uh, what has been happening around coal
1: these days in Alberta? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's been a big controversial topic here in Alberta. One thing I'd like to do just before that is a quick land recognition. Um, so I'd like Perfectly. to recognize that I, so I live in Edmonton, Alberta, and I think you do as well. So I acknowledge mm-hmm. that we are located on Tree Six territory and respect the histories, languages and cultures of the First Nations, Métis, uh, Inuit and First Peoples of Canada. Um, so, and that ties quite a bit into the coal mining as well uh, here in Alberta. So coal mining has been happening in Alberta for a long time. It's pretty historic here since it's been happening since the 1860s. Uh, at that time that was mostly thermal coal for heating houses and then in the mid nineteenth century, there's a transition to open pit mining uh, at larger scales associated with that has a lot of different risks uh, which have been dem- demonstrated within Canada but also globally as well and we can talk about the, the bit that in a moment but what really sparked people's uh, interest and uh, concerns in alberta here is specifically the potential for open pit mining in the eastern slopes there and then the alberta government also rescinded the 1976 coal policy act which prevented a lot of open pit coal mining in what was considered category two land where Initially, there, there was never supposed to be coal mining due to the sensitive nature of the ecosystems. So kind of those combined it raised a lot of concern in the last six months. But with that in mind, though, the, there, some of the mines are on Category 4 lands that are still located within the eastern slopes. Uh, and they fall under um, different rules and guidelines um, for various reasons.
0: Yeah, it's a huge area of land that we're talking about. Um it it's not it's not just one small area. This is I've heard it referred to as as the size of Vancouver Island. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Uh maybe you can touch on that.
1: Yeah, so the there are there are four categories. So uh category one is usually related to provincial national parks where there's no mine. Category two is outside of the parks. Um where in some cases there may be mining allowed, but typically there wasn't. Uh, and then there's category three and four, which were uh, pro- allowed open pit mining to various degrees. And for the f- extent they're quite large. I don't know the exact hectares of land. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know that. Actually, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fine. No, it, it, I know it, it. If you look on a map, and and for listeners who are interested, they can they can look on. We'll leave links to to some of the information around this, and and to kind of get an, a sense of scale as well. Because it's we're not talking about a small region. We're talking about impacting quite a large area that maybe isn't as accessible, and people aren't always in. But it, just because people don't go there, and lots of people don't visit every day, it doesn't mean it impacts. Daily life
1: um, for many, many yeah, people. E- exactly. And I think the thing is that there, there are multiple mines being proposed. I think there's currently six that are still moving forward with exploration within these areas. Uh, initially, there were more, but since um, early January, I think some of that was scaled back uh, on the permitting. And when we look in BC, just over in the Elk Valley, which is what most people are kind of comparing uh, our side of the slopes to as well, the Tech Resources' mine in the Elk Valley spans 32,500 hecta-acres. It essentially goes all the way from Sparwood up to almost up to Calgary in some places. Wow! Uh, it's quite it's quite vast. It's very long. And I think Elk Valley themselves they they had five open pits and now they're down to four, and with another one being proposed uh, and going through an environmental impact assessment. Um, And they have a long lifespan of mining left in that area. Uh, Whereas compared to here in Alberta, we don't really have any mining in those regions currently. So this could have large environmental and health impacts depending on whether these mines move forward or not. And one mine is quite small on its own. But when you consider five, six or ten mines in, in this very narrow stretch of sensitive ecosystems, it could have a larger impact on on these terrains overall and and into the future.
0: Yeah, exactly. Can you take us through some of what what are some of the potential effects to freshwater systems from coal mining operations?
1: Yeah, I think that's what everyone really wants to know. So there are different impacts depending on what stage these companies and mines are at. So to just kind of go through what a mine life looks like, usually it starts off in exploration They're they're making roads so they can get drill pads on to certain locations to get drill holes so they can figure out uh, certain geological targets, where the resources are, and they can map out their indicated and measured resource reserves. And then based on that, if they think it's financially viable, they move forward uh, into an environmental impact assessment, uh, which is quite extensive now, Um, less so in the past. Uh, but typically what that involves is they contract out consultants, environmental consultants, who do baseline studies on the area to look and see what the environment's like currently. Uh, and then they do predictions into the future of what it might look like after mining and during the mining. And then once that's done, if it's approved to be an open-pit mine, uh, they move forward into breaking ground, and that involves moving vast amount of overburden. And overburden is... It's soil and geological material that's kind of over top of the commodity that they want to get after, so in this case, coal. Uh, And then what they have to do is they have to move all that overburden and then store it on site. And what happens when you do that, you end up enhancing the weathering of the phases and different minerals that are already there. And associated with that is where a lot of the contamination comes from uh, due to oxygen flow and Rainwater being moved through it, it really enhances uh, the weathering. And of, of particular, and some of your viewers might actually know this, um, but the mineral pyrite—it's an iron sulfide mineral It's often collected as a gemstone. Uh, it actually—that's that, the phase that contains most of the contaminants, such as arsenic and selenium. Really
0: interesting. Yeah,
1: and when you when you enhance the weathering and, and the leaching. Uh, you can get very elevated concentrations of these contaminants running off into the ecosystem if it's not properly maintained or uh, stored on site, which is the case what we're seeing in the Elk Valley currently and have been seeing since the early 1980s. Uh, there have been elevated selenium concentrations above the water quality guidelines. Um, and just for reference, the water quality guidelines here in Alberta for selenium is two parts per billion, and for nitrate uh, is three milligrams per liter or sorry, three parts per billion per million. Sorry. And the nitrate actually comes from what what they use in their explosives to actually move the overburden oh. and separate it. It's, it's called the it's called anfo ammonium nitrate fuel oil. It's just an explosive that helps uh, break things up. Uh, but then that the nitrate also becomes very toxic and, and elevated Uh, so that's also another concern tech valley or sorry tech resources in elk valley they've been seeing concentrations exceeding 100 uh, parts per billion of selenium and uh, up to 40 to 50 parts per million of nitrate in some cases Um, and it's it depends on the season as well Uh, there's a lot of correlation with um, seasonal runoff due to the nature of the flowing water and Moving into the streams, unfortunately, though, associated with the elevated concentrations, there's a lot of risks and their deleterious effects on the native species in those areas. So, uh, for example, Tech Resources, they've seen large impacts on the native West Slope cutthroat trout populations in, in the tributaries of the Elk Valley and the Elk River
0: basically what's happening is they take the overburden, which is basically the top soil and everything that's sitting above coal. They take it and they pick it up and move it to the side and they use explosives to loosen it up and expose it. And, and basically you can think of would it would it be right to think of it as kind of just moving it and making a giant mound or, or is this being spread out over a large area?
1: Yeah. So kind of both um, the, the, vast amount of waste rock that they have to or overburden that they have to move uh, which is then called waste rock because there's no valuable resources in it and they push these into what are called waste rock dumps historically um, what has happened it was called mountaintop mining and valley fill so they would remove all this overburden and then push it as waste rock dumps into a nearby valley to, to store it and that's the reason why there's so much contamination Um, And and that's also been seen a lot in the United States, uh, in the Appalachios. They have many, many coal mines with this issue, and they're they're still dealing with them today. And it's an issue here in Canada as well. But with newer technologies and remediation strategies um, that Tech Resources is working on and, and others, there's potential to offset some of the risks overall. I wouldn't say all of them, but at least some of them.
0: Yeah, And so, from what we've been talking about so far, the major risks are getting these contaminants into the water systems. And when, and you're talking about parts per million, parts per billion, like that is that's tiny. Like that's that's a a really, really small amount. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you people are familiar with maybe arsenic? Do you happen to know what maybe like a safe level of arsenic in the water is? Because people might be surprised to learn that there is arsenic in our our water supply at very potentially very low levels but there's a safe level for everything um is that comparable to selenium and and things like that
1: yeah actually arsenic and selenium are very similar they sit right beside each other on the periodic table so they share a lot of similar traits the water quality guideline uh, here in alberta for arsenic is five parts per billion so slightly higher than that of selenium Uh, and the reason selenium is lower it is a trace nutrient in our, in our body and, and in all organisms, but the value be, between becoming a contaminant is very small. So there's a high risk uh, of, of tissue contamination, uh, which is commonly seen, most, most often seen in, in fish. Um, and, and that's why it's so low. But it, it often, at the same time, though, it's very hard for companies to achieve that very low limit uh, of two parts per billion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because that might be already just the natural kind of level in those areas potentially. And then as soon as you take rock and move it and it's all exposed to different areas and it just allows for a lot more runoff and exposure to rain and... Yeah, you think of digging up your garden and piling all the earth somewhere. You're going to expose a lot of stuff that would have been normally deep underground. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the other risks that I, I'll mention as well, or maybe not risks, but changes, is just the large footprints of these mines. Mm. You're disturbing many, many hundreds of thousands of hectares, possibly. Um, and there have been lots of studies in the United States and here in Canada to show that uh, when you move all this overburden and try to put it back in place, it changes the groundwater and the groundwater movement in these areas. Um, and studies in the United States have actually shown that when there was greater than 2.2 or 2.5 percent uh, mining activities in uh, like tributary catchments and drainages, uh, they saw large changes and um, negative impacts on the macro invertebrates, so fish species and um potentially insects as well mm-hmm.
0: uh, are there any other substances or or things in the in the water or or contaminants that we need to be concerned about other than selenium and nitrate?
1: yeah, that's a great question um, There are other contaminants of concern um and it kind of depends on the mine and the geological material being moved and the overburden. Uh, for example, in the United States, uh, they see a lot of arsenic and heavy metals, so uh, nickel and zinc. Um, mm-hmm. But also in the Elk Valley, there have been, in the last three, four years, they have seen increased concentrations of nickel and cobalt. Uh, they see seen nickel concentrations up to 140 parts per billion. Uh, and the regulatory limit is 150. And they've also seen cobalt increase to above 25 parts per billion, where the the regulatory limit is four parts per billion. Um, and tech has noticed or commented that there might be effects from those metals on the local environment, particularly on uh, aquatic insects that are the main um, food sources for some of the native trout species there.
0: Right. So that might have what we call trophic cascades where it affects one species and then that just continues on and has so many other deleterious effects to other species just because it, it affected one one key species along the food chain.
1: Yeah. And it, it's pretty recent that they've seen these increases in, in nickel and cobalt. Uh, and it's difficult to determine where it's actually coming from. Uh, is it coming from the waste rock dumps? But they've, they've been around for so long, why haven't they seen those concentrations before? Or is it associated with um, something else they're doing, possibly these new saturated rock fills? Is it coming from that potentially? They, they're, they have full-scale operations of those going, so it's difficult to say and it's still kind of early on, but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. That's
0: concerning. If, if it's something that we're seeing a, an uptick in, but we've been doing this a long time and we have a pretty good idea and handle on most things, it's concerning when we have an uptick in something that kind of out of the blue. Mm -hmm. and what kind of implications it would have for these new potential mines.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think one of the other things I've been kind of thinking about as well, it hasn't been talked about, is the potential for arsenic mobility. Um, Mm. So arsenic isn't currently an issue at Elk Valley, and that's because of the waste rock dump conditions. They they end up being uh, absorbed and removed by a lot of the iron minerals that are there. But when you start using these new saturated rock fills, is changing the conditions drastically. It's almost 180 degrees. Fl- You're going from like fully oxygenated to a system where you have no oxygen. And that changes the the, the the chemistry and the geochemistry of these systems quite a bit. And we're just not sure what the long-term effects might be.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point to bring up because many people might not think that there's a big difference between chemical reactions in an oxygen rich environment or in, a, in an anaerobic or non-oxygenated environment, but it really makes all the difference. It's imagine having a fire but you didn't have oxygen. Could you still have that fire? No. So it, it affects the chemical reactions so greatly. Yeah, that's uh that's really interesting with because I mean arsenic is something that mo- many people will be familiar with and and, and that's a uh, that's that's definitely something to keep on and uh, keep an eye on so is this really an, an issue for fish or is this also potentially like a human health issue like who is downstream of these mines could this affect irrigation water for crops uh, the fish or even drinking water
1: yeah and that's kind of one of the big questions especially in alberta right now is uh, water usage uh especially in southern alberta where it's very dry already it gets very low precipitation uh, these, the, the rivers such as the Old Man and the Crowsness River are, uh, heavily used by agriculture, um, local communities, uh, and then they, and then adding on top of that, uh, the large amount of water withdrawal for mining, uh, and particularly coal mining. Coal mining is very water intensive. So it uses about, uh, 250 liters of fresh water, uh, per one ton of coal to actually wash the coal because they have to wash the coal to remove some of the a lot of the dust, what, what's called fly ash. And this water has to be kept on site because it's considered contaminated, right? It has a lot of different particulate matter and, and it's mobilizing those contaminants that are already there. But also they have to use 750 liters or, or thereabouts of re- recycled water. So recycled water is just that, it's stored water that's already been used for washing. So in total they use about 1,000 liters per one ton of coal to wash the coal initially. And then that has to be stored on site and then they can reuse some of that water for washing. But when you add it up, the amount of water that's being withdrawn is, is a lot. Um, So the mine that's closest to being in production is the uh, grassy mountain coal project in the Crow's pass uh, by Benga mining limited. Uh, And they're estimating about 4.5 million tons of coal per year, for 23 years. I think I worked out the math a little while ago. I think it was around a, uh three billion liters of water per fresh water per year of water withdrawal uh, just to wash the coal.
0: Wow, that's a huge amount of water. I had no idea that, that was washing the that washing the coal was A, even a thing, or B that there would be that much coal that much water used in the processing of the coal that is a huge amount of water and i mean maybe i'm just ignorant to the fact of how much kind of the old man river or or these other tributary systems how much water they have so is that is that a significant amount or is that a there these rivers are huge they 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 that they won't miss that kind of water
1: yeah, so they, I think they definitely will miss some of that water because uh, there also has to be water enough water to sustain the local ecosystems mm-hmm. and the, the species within the rivers. And there's also water allocated for tra- transboundary uh, into Saskatchewan and Manitoba. There has to be a specific amount of, of flow into those provinces to sustain their watersheds as well. Uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Chris Hopkinson from the University of Lethbridge, has actually recently published a opinion article where he did a very detailed analysis of all the, the water usage. Um, I can't I can't remember numbers off the top of my head, unfortunately, but I do I do know that the Alberta government is working on changing the water allocations in southern Alberta, mm. uh, which are already kind of taxed and kind of maxed out almost. Um, I think from what I heard, they're planning on allowing industry to draw up to about forty percent of the unallocated water, which I think is currently being maintained for, um, um, downstream uses.
0: Yeah, that's, that's concerning. It's, it's, I mean, having worked in and traveled throughout Southern Alberta, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a farming background, but the irrigation districts. Uh, it's a heavy water use area to begin with. There is a large population of people that are using this water, and you say it's not only Alberta, It's this water is transboundary. This is going to other provinces. It's not just a one-use scenario, and then we don't have to worry about it after the coal mine. It's, if it's becoming contaminated at one source, that can influence that entire
1: region. Yeah, and then you also have to consider the uh, the impacts of climate change in the future right. as well. I think if I remember correctly, by 2050, they will be over 50 plus days of 30 degrees plus celsius weather in southern alberta where currently it is i think it's around 20 or less than that possibly so whoa there's a lot of changes that will be happening because of the current climate crisis that could compound a lot of these droughts that are seen in southern alberta
0: absolutely absolutely if that if that comes to pass then it, it, it just adds so much more stress onto an already stressed system. And unfortunately, the people at the headwaters get first crack at it to a certain degree. Yeah. And then, and then
1: those numbers that I gave, those, that's just for one mine, potentially. Wow. Once you start adding these mines up, the water usage increases drastically. And the mines won't be all in the same area, but there'll be at least a few that'll use the same headwater uh, sources. Uh, and kind of back to the transboundary issue as well. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard about what what might be going on in BC with the Lake Kukunuska and the uh, Montana because it's a transboundary mm. lake, and the selenium concentrations within the lake have increased quite a bit over the over time since the mining uh, in in Elk Valley. And more recently, there's been a lot of strain between BC and Montana governments. And Montana has recently lowered their selenium water quality guideline to 0.8 parts per billion. Wow! So over half of what is seen in BC. So they're they're kind of expecting a change in policy and um, hopefully changes in the remediation plans for tech resources.
0: Yeah, that's infinitesimally small. It seems just such a small amount. Yeah, it's definitely something to be. To be really concerned about, and and we do share boundaries with the United States. We this this can become a geopolitical issue rather than a provincial, provincial, provincial issue. I guess do we need to be concerned with turning on our taps for people who live downstream of one of these potential mines? Uh, Is that something to be concerned about?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think there's always concern when there's a a mine upstream, Um, and companies are also aware of that as well. They want to try. They usually try to treat the communities very well and. Uh, ensure that there's clean drinking water. Uh, I know in uh, Sparwood they have had to reroute some or redrill drill uh, some groundwater uh, uses for the communities there. Um, and it's difficult to kind of compare it to here in Alberta too, because that's a like tech tech resources in Elk Valley is a historic mining site. They they've been using old practices of waste rock dumps uh, for 40 years or more now. Um, And here in Alberta, there are proposed changes to the remediation and reclamation plans. And I can briefly talk about that because I think it's pretty important in understanding that. And because that'll really impact the uh, groundwater and the water quality downstream and tech tech resources have actually been putting in a lot of work um, in trying to fix their water quality issues in 2020. 16, I believe, they had a full-scale water treatment system come on on board to help uh, remove some of the selenium and nitrate from the water. Uh, unfortunately, their, their first attempt wasn't very successful because in the process, they ended up converting the selenium to actually a more organic form, which is more toxic and bioavailable. Uh, and they saw an immediate fish die off. Um, but since then, they've uh, upgraded their system and... Uh, it, they're seeing better success. And the proposed mines here in Alberta are planning on using some of the methods developed by tech. And the one that's been talked about the most is what's called saturated rock fills or saturated backfills. And what that is, is essentially they have, you have your open pit. And instead of putting the waste rock off to the side, they will, they're, they're planning to put it back inside the pit and then filling it with some of the contaminated water and then what, what they do is they'll pump nutrients down into the into the water and into the rock. And this will stimulate microbial growth that can remove the selenium and nitrate naturally and actually decrease the concentrations quite a bit. Hmm. Uh, Tech Resources is seeing uh, about a 95% removal efficiency, which is pretty good. Uh, but when I, I took a look at their released reports for 2019, uh, and they have projected values of selenium and nitrate release Uh, but and the selenium in the future at some of their sites will still be above the regulatory limit so it's not it's there's no one silver bullet for remediation and water quality it usually it takes a series of um, different plans and strategies that have to be incorporated and considered all in one and it gets quite costly at the same time too these these systems are large and they have to deal with a lot of water like the amount of water that we were talking about earlier they have to they have to clean that water in order to release it back into the environment
0: right so there are there are things that we can implement there's no silver bullet at this point but it kind of speaks to the topic of the of the podcast what are we doing and how
1: can we do better yeah I might add one more thing about um, so the proposed mines here are, are you planning on using the SRFs the saturated rock fills like I mentioned? but at the same time though they're really new they're only four or five years old and that becomes an issue when you want to figure out how long do you have to actually maintain these systems to remove the selenium and nitrate into the future right past past the closure of the mine because they'll have to maintain for a long time it takes time to clean that water and have it pumped off site and that costs money as well and there's there's been no long term uh, studies looking at the, like how, how efficient these are and how to actually decommission them and return them back to the natural landscape. So it becomes quite controversial when the Alberta Energy Regulator kind of moves forward with these, um, saying that we have technology to deal with it when there aren't really sufficient studies to actually back it up at this point. Um, there, there is good case for that, that it will work. But at the same time, though, there's always concern about decommissioning these things.
0: Right. It's a new technology. We're still working towards figuring out a way forward with it. But yeah, how does, how does this work long term? And how, does this, how is this implemented long term? That's a really good point to bring up. Yeah, I'm curious to know are there any other future technologies that are being looked at on how to decrease selenium or maybe they're kind of far fetched at this point because they're they're really costly but they they are potentially on the table in the future?
1: There there are lots of different water quality treatment methods out there currently such as reverse osmosis, granulated carbon or carbon nanotubes are becoming more popular, but the problem is it's site specific. Every mine is different. Every mine has different contaminants, um, and the biggest thing with scaling some of these technologies is is dealing with the large volume of flow and the flow rate to actually deal with the contaminants in a timely matter, because the the large amounts of water that they're stored on site, and I, I guess again it comes back to cost, right, and maintaining it, and if the company hasn't put up enough bonds. Um, to the government to ensure that there's going to be full reclamation or remediation occurring, then it falls back to the government and the public to actually reclaim some of these sites. And unfortunately there are many examples here in Canada and globally of historic and legacy sites that need to be dealt with, but it's it's restricted by funds from the government.
0: Yeah, exactly. At some point it may, might not even be cost effective or energy effective if we, are creating this energy system with coal, but we need to spend so much money and energy just to be able to treat the water so that it's at a safe level to be brought back into the system.
1: Yeah, and, and colleagues of mine from the University of Saskatchewan have actually done quite a bit of work at Tech Resources. Um, and one of the values that they actually came out with from one of the studies was they found that pirate oxidation, so the main source of contaminants that we talked about earlier, can occur for up to 300 years based yeah. on their model predictions so it's very far into the future i mean so take that with a grain of salt though it's a, it's a max value that they predicted so it could decrease but regardless it'll still be decades into the future that you have to deal with these sites yeah in order to um uh, help remediate and um maintain or sorry <laughs> I lost the word.
0: <laughs> yeah, to, to keep uh, keep remediating into the future. Yeah, and I mean we don't have a great history of building things that can last for three hundred years uh, and and be fully functional at, at that point. Let alone creating a, a wastewater treatment facility at a mine to be able to treat an entire river uh, that's flowing through it. Yeah, and, time. and
1: yeah, sorry. So, and I think that comes back to the history of Alberta as well. So we've been mining. Like I said earlier, we've been mining coal for a long time, and there are currently large-scale open pit operations ongoing. Uh, it's a mixture of metallurgical coal, which is used for steel making, uh, and also thermal coal, which is used for heating. But with the new mandates and um, promises by the government that will be phasing out thermal coal power in, by 2030, uh, a lot of these thermal coal projects will be closing down here pretty soon. Uh, and one of note actually close to Edmonton is the High Vale Mine, just so west of Edmonton. That'll be closing, I believe, this year or next year. And unfortunately, we, we have had environmental incidents here in Alberta as well associated with coal. Uh, so Obed Mountain Mine, just out by Hinton, there was a large tailings dam failure that spilled uh, millions of cubic liters of tailings into the Athabasca River. Um, and there was associated contaminant release with that. Uh, I think that was back in 2014, I believe. And also um, a bit farther into the past, in early 2000, uh, there was slime contamination uh, from the Cheviot mine that was found in the McLeod and Gregg Rivers, uh, just just outside of the uh, Jasper, Boar, Jasper Provincial Park. And that mine's been closed for a while now, and the Government wasn't hiding this data, but they weren't um, saying that it was that it wasn't happening. There, there have been a few government panels and studies looking at fish tissue contamination or selenium contamination um, in the fish populations there. So we have our own issues here in Alberta as well with coal mining.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and thanks for getting me back on track here uh, yeah we have a we do have a history here of open pit mining uh, for different types of energy as well We're the home of the oil sands here in, in Alberta so yeah what what makes these potential mines different than them than these previous mines
1: So I think some of the biggest differences is the location of these proposed mines um, they're in that narrow narrow kind of landscape, Uh, the category two lands which is really a transition from mountainous terrain to kind of the foothills areas or foothills regions and that hasn't really ever been mined before so how do we assess the impacts the land the long-term impacts um of those mines especially when there's six or ten mines and across the whole whole area and while there there is the companies do, are proposing these new methods that we talked about, such as saturated rock fills. Um, I think they're relying on them too heavily um, at this stage since they're so new. And usually regulators, energy regulators are quite wary of new technology because it hasn't been completely proven and f- for good reasons, too. Um, and I think one of the other differences, too, is actually the coal quality there's been lots of talks about the the quality of the coal and how it it actually isn't worth as much as the the companies are proposing that it is. Mm. And there's been a number of um, uh, people talking about this and most notably um, Cornelius Kjorn. He's a coking coal specialist and consultant who worked with tech resources for many years. And he, he did a study on the Grassy Mountain Coal Project and showed that they'll have... Decent coking coal within the first two years, but after that it'll decline quite rapidly, and the the coal projections may not be there. And then I think combined with that, a lot of where a lot of the um, hesitance is with uh, the people of Alberta is that there are alternative methods coming online globally for coking coal, uh, and metallurgical coal can only be used as a coking source for steel making. It doesn't have any other purposes. So if and the other alternatives are electric arc furnaces and hydrogen, and those are coming online pretty fast and our electric arc furnaces are already being used. So how can we justify opening new coal mines in during the midst of a climate crisis with carbon emissions when the coal quality might not be there and that will impact the longevity of the mines and the revenues to the, the province of Alberta? And the public, and balancing that with the potential risks associated with open pit mining and changing the landscape permanently.
0: The ramifications of doubling down on coal is is, is quite large, and if it, it doesn't have as much utility as it has in the past, that is definitely a concern. When we when we venture into something that is is really become quite the hot button topic issue in Alberta. You've spoken with a number of different people across the province and it seems that this to me at least has seemed to struck a real chord with Albertans this issue of coal extraction in the in the foothills region and it seems to cut across party lines so why why do you think this has become such a bipartisan issue of being concerned about our
1: headwaters yeah and I think that's it's great to see so many people voicing their opinions about this Um, especially just independent of what your your political views are, and I think the reason why it it gets at people, especially in Alberta, is the Rocky Mountains are important to everyone here. It's a it's a iconic symbol for everyone, and it's a place where we pride ourselves on and like to go and spend our free time and vacation. But it's also, uh, I would say, a, a national symbol as well, um, and people from in, other countries come here just to see the Rocky mountains and mountains. And um, so I think it's based on that alone, I think it's, it's really causing people to rethink what energy and resource development means um, and being so close to home Um, at the headwaters as well. It's an important topic because these, these, these headwaters feed different basins. So they feeds the Southern, Southern Saskatchewan, uh, near the Crow's Nest region, um, and then more north in the Rocky Mountain House, Nordegg area, that feeds into North Saskatchewan. And those both flow into Saskatchewan and Manitoba and are make up the majority of the watersheds here in Alberta.
0: Yeah, it impacts, it has, it has such far-reaching impacts and it affects a symbol of the province and it, and it really affects the people in so many
1: different ways. Especially during COVID as well, I think we've all realized how important it is to get outside and take breaks for mental health. And I think that's becoming a very important topic for everyone. And the mountains are are an escape. Um, So I think when you talk about these vast open pit mines and moving contaminants and with the previous history in Canada, uh, in BC and Alberta for coal mining in particular, I think it becomes difficult for people to justify in their minds.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious too. Do you see this as more of an environmental health issue, or does this have human health impacts as well? Because are we, we're tied with water in so many ways. Maybe it, it's not from our taps, but it as like hunters and anglers that are are consuming species on this landscape. Do we are there other are ways for human health to be impacted?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a difficult question to answer um, because I think it it depends on how many mines go through the quality of the remediation strategies and how well they're implemented and whether and depending on the concentrations of contaminants in the streams but regardless of that there are other concerns especially around dust and dust mitigation coal mines they're they're very dusty and there's actually water allocated for suppressing dust Mm. um and there have been many studies in the United States looking at uh, black lung miners' lung, right? Um, having and has cardiovascular um, implications as well when you breathe that in, and when you combine that with the strong winds from the Rocky Mountains, that uh, particulate matter can travel quite far. And there's uh, examples in Canada of what particulate matter can actually do to environments. And I think one example is. Um, it not, not coal related, but it's uh, it's usually related to smelting of metals uh, where the, the smelting stack is. And then downstream of that, they, there's been lots of examples of ecosystem degradation, uh, loss of soil, and then it, their trees can't grow. So then they have increased runoff and erosion.
0: Yeah. And you're, you're referring to, uh, so kind of acid rain, is that, is that typically what we are referring to like with the smelting process? I I'm originally from Ontario, so I'm, I'm familiar with the Sudbury story.
1: Yeah. There's lots of examples out that way. I know of, I'm not sure particularly about acid rain specifically, but, um, usually when the, the particulate matter is deposited, it contains metals to some extent and then those metals leach out and erode the soil. And, uh, partially contaminate the soil as well.
0: Yeah, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around all of these different implications to human health, environmental health, water usage and and potential scarcity. Um, but I was wondering if you could just kind of touch on on consultation and and water scarcity and and what we can do from from a, a governmental perspective and what's been done, I guess, get a bit more context on on what we can do better and what we are currently doing um, from a government point of view.
1: There's a lot going on, especially about coal right now in Alberta and Canada. Uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot of talks happening right now as well about water security, which are really important to have and relate directly to mining and mining issues. I think at a federal level, um, currently the there was recently a consult consultations Uh, being had with the federal government about creating a Canadian water agency to help protect and monitor our freshwater systems. Uh, So that's really important, and that's a a good step forward. And uh, federally, there's in in Alberta itself, there's been a lot of issues recently um, with the 1976 coal policy being rescinded without really any public consultations. Uh, But since then, they have have brought it back, so that's, that's good. Uh, And now they are beginning consultations with the public. And I would encourage everyone to uh, invest time into that. It's really important for water security and for uh, downstream impacts and and human ecosystem health. Um, Again, with the province, though, um, a a recent article that I saw cited that there's been 54 uh, suspended environmental regulations here in Alberta alone. And that's fine because it was during COVID, but at the same time though, when you compare that to other provinces, it's a massive increase. So that's slightly concerning as well. And there needs to be a better balance there between industry and environmental protection. Um, Also, there needs to be at at the federal level, and this will be part of the consultations as well, uh, hopefully, is what will the new Coal Policy Act look like? How will the current government change it? And what will this look like for the Rocky Mountains and the foothills regions? We need to encourage the government to help protect these um, sensitive ecosystems where the proposed mines might happen and also reconsider what a category four land is because that's the land where they do allow mining. and there are technically category four lands in the Rocky Mountains and foothills regions where some of the mines are being proposed. So even though it might be an historic land or legacy site, it could still have larger impacts and footprints left in the future.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to take all of those things into consideration as we, as we move forward. And um, I I hope to, I, I plan to add, add some things in the show notes so people can find out more about these consultations and how they can have their voices heard. Um, do you have, um, maybe you can send me some, uh, some links and, and things to some of the, the consultation things that I can include, include in the show notes as well. That'd be wonderful. Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah, yeah there's a survey that just got released that, that's kind of the beginning of the cold consultations, and I'm sure there's be, there'll, there'll be more to come, hopefully.
0: Wonderful. So. so, yeah, take a look in the show notes, and we will make sure that um, there'll be there'll be some links down there so people can, can have their voices heard as well. I think it's important that everyone can voice their opinions because there's so many different things uh, that can be an important issue to someone and maybe it's not as important to me but it's important to have everyone have their voices heard and that's what these consultations are really about
1: yeah and I, I think there might be some confusion as well lots of people think of acid rock drainage or acid mine drainage and they're typically you see that in the United States with associated with coal and you you see these pictures and they're bright yellow bright orange right uh, that's just due to the mineralogy um, like the type types of minerals that precipitate out Um, but that's not what we expect here uh, at these mines so it's a different type of mine drainage called neutral mine drainage Um, and that's what's seen in bc as well and it's just due to the uh, high amounts of carbonate minerals to actually remove the acid naturally uh, because our rocky mountains are made of predominantly limestone and dolomite uh, calcium carbonate minerals sorry getting a little technical
0: <laughs> no worries
1: but really you you can't really notice contamination if you look at the elk valley you don't see any of those very vibrant colors associated with ash rock drainage it's, it looks pretty much normal but chemically um, there's contaminants there and water quality issues associated with that
0: it's something to keep in mind too with as you, as you're saying this is this is new we haven't mined in these areas and we can do all the ex- expected things as well but that i mean i guess that's a plus for it that we wouldn't have to really have to worry about that yeah i i'm i'm so interested to hear so for those who are listening to this podcast and they may have some strong opinions about this and they want to have their voice heard about coal exploration how can they get involved
1: yeah there are lots of great ways to get involved right now um... I think the most important and the best way is to talk to your representatives, send them emails and letters of your thoughts, um, but also try to become educated on these topics. There's, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of different uh, scopes within mining. Uh, but there's lots of good material out there. I would recommend uh, the Alberta Wilderness Society. They, they have uh, virtual town halls that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, the Canadian Parks and Wildlife Society of Alberta. They also post a lot of great information that you can read up on, uh, and they're, they are—they're always on top of the, the news that what, what's changing. But really, yeah, I think talking to your representatives and voicing your opinions there is is the most important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think regardless of the of the topic, I think engaging with your local representation—if it's something that is—it seems like it's too large of a thing to change. Uh, it's, it has to start from somewhere. So, um, yeah, uh, joining together and, and talking to your local representation is huge for environmental issues everywhere.
1: And one other thing I'd like to highlight as well: if um, listeners like have questions, they can they should always feel comfortable to reach out to a scientist or scientific community at local universities, um, where a lot of a, a big part of our job is outreach and trying to communicate our science and what what we find. Um, So I hope that um, the listeners feel comfortable enough if they have questions to reach out to me or other experts in in our field.
0: Exactly. Colton is, is a great, great guest. And we're having a great conversation. I, I, I don't think he'll bite. We're not in the same room because of COVID, but uh, (laughs) I'm sure there's, there is kind of a typical shroud of, Oh, they're at a university. They won't answer my email, but People who work at universities, they may be busy, but they also are are studying these topics because they're interested and they want to help grow knowledge about that. And and I think it's yeah, that's a really great salient point of it doesn't hurt to ask and to to find out more from the people who know more, and that's exactly why we're talking today. Because I know very little about this subject, and you know quite a lot. So I'm I'm so excited that you were able to, uh, we were able to have some time to to chat about this. And uh, yeah, you've opened my eyes to quite a few things with uh, in regards to coal in the eastern slopes. Yeah, I was wondering if we could just maybe finish off with a bit about telling our listeners a bit about your career path and how, what led you to doing research in this field? What really got you uh, excited and, and interested in this in the beginning?
1: Of course. Yeah. Um, so after I finished, so I grew up in Southern Alberta, I think that's a good place to start. Um, I spent a lot of time in the mountains, fishing, hiking. Um, and that was a, Big part of my identity, and, and through a big part of everyone's identity in Alberta, I think, and that's why the Rocky Mountains again are so important. But and then I went to University of Saskatchewan. Uh, my plan was to move into marine biology or fisheries, uh, but then I ended up taking a geology course, and that kind of changed my view and what I understood. And it was very practical, and that's what I liked about it. Uh, And when I went back to Okotoks or southern Alberta and looked at the mountains, I could understand them to a deeper level. Uh, So it kind of hooked me in that way. Um, But at the same time, though, I always wanted to work in environmental sciences in some aspect. And then um, my old supervisor from the University of Saskatchewan uh, took me on as a research student. I did an undergrad thesis with him and then ended up doing my master's with him. And he, he specializes in environmental geochemistry. Um, and at that time, I did uh, work on the oil sands mines, actually, on reclamation strategies there, which is quite interesting. It could be a whole other show.
0: <laughs> well, that's a whole other
1: topic right there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it, I think one of the difficult things about... My field and earth sciences in general is that it's very underrepresented in primary school and junior junior high and high school here in Alberta and and across Canada. So I didn't really actually understand what geology was until my first year of university. Um, So I'm I'm hoping we can start making that change, but it's at the education level, it's quite difficult.
0: Yeah, it. Geology, I, it's not portrayed as glamorously as it maybe should be because there's there's so many aspects that affect everyone's daily life. Like, look at what we're talking about right now.
1: Yeah. And one of the other really cool things about my job and my career path is I get to do a lot of traveling. Like, I, I get to go to a lot of mines, uh, particularly up north. That's where a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very remote sites. And I'm sure you've been to a lot of remote sites as well, being a field biologist.
0: Yeah, and the funny thing with remote sites are they are pretty much their own entire world. I mean, I haven't spent much time in an actual mine, but it, they seem to have their own working systems, and yeah, they're absolutely fascinating to figure out how they how they run. Maybe to to wrap this up here, if there was one thing you would want people to take away from this conversation, what would you say would be uh, your take home message?
1: Yeah, there's a lot that listeners can take away, um, and I. I hope that what you guys can understand is that these are large scale uh, mines and they do have long term impacts on the environment, um, potentially environmental and human health risks. Um, And it also they take a long time to remediate and and close and bring back to the environment. And there are technologies being developed, but at the same time, though, we have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, and I think trying to understand these systems more broadly um, can help uh, the public get a better grasp on maybe their views, whether they're pro or against these minds.
0: Perfect. And yeah, I, and, and it's something to say too that we we do need resources and resource extraction does happen. We do have to take into account the the effects. And, and how and the implications that can have and, and how long-term, how widespread, and how many people and, and organisms are affected by that. And it needs to be uh, all taken into account.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. We, as a society, we do need resources and uh, specific resources for different things. And we do need steel in order to advance our society. Um, but at the same time, though, can we use alternatives more so in Canada? And globally rather than mining um, for a resource that might not be on the market for very long?
0: Absolutely. yeah. So what are what are the alternatives and how can we yeah, what are we doing and how can we do better? So yeah, what are the alternatives like this the hydrogen uh, version and, and those other. sorry, I, I, c- I can't remember exactly what they were.
1: Yeah, so the alternatives currently um, are electric arc furnaces. And actually, I found a stat from a recent paper published in 2019 show, showing that uh, electric arc furnaces' use will grow from about 10% to 50% uh, by 2050. And that's over the lifespan of these mines here in Alberta. And electric arc furnaces, they still do need uh, a bit of coking coal sometimes, but they're much more efficient. They use a lot less. Or they can also reuse old steel and uh, to, to make more high-purity steel. Um, and there's also hydrogen based or um, iron, what's called iron reducing systems uh, or direct reducing. And hydrogen is coming online. I know in Sweden they have, they have a test plot, uh, plant um, and it's going to be coming on full scale here quicker than they're expecting in the next couple of years. Uh, and there's also other countries working towards these goals as well. And when you combine that with the global production of metallurgical coal, there are other countries such as the United States, uh, Australia, and China, that, and India that can produce a lot more coal than, than Canada, and specifically Alberta. And most of the coal in Canada, or metallurgical coal from Canada, comes from the BC Elk Valley mines. And these smaller mines are going to have a lot of trouble competing uh, on the market with them. So again, there's a a balance between environmental responsibility um, and trying to justify these new mines uh, for for to stimulate the economy and, and resource development.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Colton. I know I've learned a lot, and I hope the listeners will have learned a lot as well. And I'm not here arguing for or against, but this is really I want to help disseminate information. This is an issue that is is very hot topic and there are some big implications to health environmental health and the alberta region and other watersheds as well so thank you so much colton for coming into the show and dropping some knowledge for us and we will leave some links in the show notes to some of the research and some of the uh advocacy groups that if you listen to this episode and you're really interested and passionate and want to get involved then some of these other organizations they will happily be able to help you out and point you in the right direction but thank you colton for coming on the show today
1: yeah thank you very much and congrats with the new podcast
0: oh thank you very much it's uh so exciting and, and thank you yeah it's i'm excited to to share this with everyone <laughs> Thanks for tuning into today's deep dive episode about coal in Alberta and the potential impacts to our water systems. I'd just like to thank Colton Vesey again for taking the time to speak with me about this really fascinating topic. If you want to get involved and make sure that your voice is heard, the Alberta government has just released their initial survey for their consultation process on coal in the foothills. So if you want to fill out that survey, it closes on April 19th, 2021. There will be a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the survey. There's many other ways to get involved. Many other organizations are really concerned about this as well and are helping to inform and bring people together about this issue. There will also be links in the show notes to some of these organizations, like the Alberta Wilderness Association and the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. (CPAWS). Also, there's great groups on Facebook that are also striving hard to raise awareness and band people together. I would highly encourage everyone to go and check out that survey and fill it out for yourself. If you have any questions about Cole or anything at all, you can feel free to email the show. You can also feel free to email Colton, and his email will be right in the show notes as well. I'm the host and producer david evans and i would just like to thank the rest of the team from the aquatic biosphere project specifically to paula Pullman, sophie Severa, anna Bettini. thanks for all of your help to learn more about the aquatic biosphere project and what we're doing here in alberta telling the story of water check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca and if you have any questions or comments about the show we'd love to hear them email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next week when we talk everything about wildfire and water. Many people are more worried about the fire when it's actually lit. But it's surprising that even after the fire, the effects can be felt for decades. We'll talk all about how fire actually influences how much water we can get from a system and how fires are potentially changing in the future. You'll hear from Dr. Kevin Bladen from Oregon State University all about the impacts of wildfire on our freshwater systems. Tune in. You won't want to miss it.
1: Thanks, and it's been a splash.